You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. Our guest today is Osama Said, currently the Director of Communications for Amnesty International. Osama is an accomplished PR guru, having previously worked with Al Jazeera in Qatar to lead their global communications. He spearheaded the award-winning Free AJ Staff campaign to release jailed journalists in Egypt. Hailing from Bishop Briggs, Osama was one of the first Muslims to get involved with the SNP and also worked for its leader Alex Salmond, long before many people supported them. He also stood for Parliament in 2010. Osama became prominent in the anti-war protests following 9-11 and has since been described in the media as one of Scotland's top 100 thinkers and opinion formers, one of the country's brightest and best and as one of Scotland's most influential Muslims. So Osama, welcome and assalamu alaikum. Now you've lived and travelled away from Scotland for many years now. Do you still find it emotional whenever you leave? Whenever I leave Scotland? Um, yeah, I, th- I think over the years I've got more used to it. I remember when I when I first left, um, yeah, I used to turn into a bit of a gibbering wreck uh, each time and, uh, you know, there'd be this emotional parting with my mother on, on, on both sides and I think over time both of us have got a bit more used to it. But uh, it doesn't get any easier now. And is that all, is, apart from perhaps obviously leaving the family home, is it also about the country? Because I guess that's been a real part of your past as well. Yeah, Scotland always means, you know, so much. And, uh, you know, before leaving, obviously, I worked in Scottish politics for, for the SNP. And, you know, I still got high hopes of, of what Scotland will be in the future, the kind of nation that it needs to be, but also that the world needs it to be on, on the global stage. Now, we've known each other for many years. And when I, I remember when I first heard about you getting involved with SNP, I was thinking, what's the point? What's he doing that for? Who's this tiny little fringe bunch of nutters, right? But what what was it about Scottish independence that captured your heart those those years ago? It, it was very much a conviction thing. And it was after uh, the Iraq protests, which which I was heavily involved with, as, as, you, as you mentioned at the beginning. And... Through that, I, I got to know Alex Salmond and indeed Nicola Sturgeon. And at that time, as you said, the party was, wasn't what it is today. I mean, it was very much a fringe thing. And me being a political animal, I, I just had this thing that I needed to be involved in politics in some sense. And, you know, both of them were, were very gracious with their time. And, and I think they were always very keen for, for young people to get involved. And I think that's, from what I can see, that still continues till today. They, they, they really pay a lot of attention to not just the great and the good, but but people on, on the grassroots. And, and I always took a, a big lesson from that. But you're right, at the time, a lot of elders in the community were were saying that you're wasting your time and, and all of this will amount to nothing. And, and these people are either complete losers or, 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 or racists and, and, and so on. And, and you know, I, I don't think even in my wildest dreams... You know, you you had a sense that this was the right thing, but you couldn't envisage that one day, you know, this party will be in government, let alone stomping to massive electoral wins. And, you know, 
maybe even on the precipice of of, of making this a, an independent nation. Um, at that time in 2003, it would have seemed fanciful. And you worked as an aide to Alex Salmond, and I remember you used to drive around the whole country <laughs> endlessly several times a week. What are your sort of memories of those days? It was a great experience. I mean, that that was my first job out of university, and <clears throat> it was a little bit a little bit daunting uh, for for sure. He's a great boss. I mean, not, not only just a great politician and, and orator and, and, and media manipulator, he's a great person to learn from in that respect. Uh, but he's he's somebody that invests a lot into his people. You know, if you look at the people around him, they, they do go on to, to better things because of the, the skills and the, the enablement that, that he gives you. You know, Hamza Yusuf worked for him and, you know, he's obviously well known within within the Glasgow community. And then there are many others as well that, that owe him a great debt and, and uh, I'm very much the same. And is there a particular quality about him that stands out for you in terms of that you learned from or that struck you as somebody that who's obviously achieved a lot of success? There's so much about him and and it's 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 one of those weird things in Scotland where we we tend not to recognise the, the qualities in, in some of our great people. And as a politician, he, I would say that he's he's unmatched in, in in the modern age. You know, he's got you know great ability to to connect with people on the ground. He's a great, great ability on on the media. He delivers a good speech, and he, and tactically, he's, he's 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 very astute. But the thing that shines out for me above everything is it's his his loyalty to people. I mean, I you know the. The investment that that he put into me, I, I I can't I couldn't possibly repay. But that also stood in in good times and bad. You know, there's people around him, and I was the same. I went through some some rough patches in in, in my political career, and you know, there's this feeling in politics that politicians are extremely venal and will will drop even close friends at the drop of a hat is you know the sign of bad headlines and he not only was he not like that it was the complete opposite he was a source of great support and you know I was, I was extremely humbled to, to count him as a mentor now you grew up in bishop briggs the eldest of three sons what was school life like in those the, those early days it was it was it was weird. I mean, Bishop Briggs is, is still not, you could say, a multicultural place, you know, compared to other parts in and around the city of Glasgow. And, you know, in my year group in, in primary school, I was pretty much the only Asian. And it was the 1980s, so, you know, there's the racism was still a thing. And, you know, I suffered a great deal, but probably until the until the age of 10, you know, a lot of racist abuse. I mean, it was a daily thing. It's, and I think it shaped a lot of a lot of my worldview. At that time, it was just a normal thing. It hurt, but, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've always been a believer that, that, you know, what doesn't kill you definitely does make you stronger. And people obviously deal with these sort of challenges, especially at a young age in terms of racism and bullying, etc. I mean, how did you react? Was it getting into fights and arguments? Or would you retreat into yourself or just work harder? What was your sort of response to all of this? Well, man, you, you know me a, a number of years and, and you'll know I'm not a very good fighter. So that, 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 that wasn't my default reaction. Okay. I, I, I mean, I was always quite quiet and introspective and I think possibly that did uh, attract it as well. But I remember also making some, some, some arguments which, you know, as you know, as 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 a kid at that time, it was very confusing. And you know, my 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 father would tell me things such as, you know, you, you're Scottish, you're Scottish as anyone else, and don't let anyone tell you tell you otherwise. And I remember trying to make those arguments when people would tell you you're packy or or wherever else. And you know, I remember people at the time saying you couldn't 
possibly be Scottish? What, what on earth are you talking about? But that belief was there, and, and you know that comes from from your parents, and, and they they had always in, instilled that in there. And I think you just quietly live it. There's not much you could do about it. You know, you 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 tell teachers about it at that time, and and it's weird to think back now, but you know nobody did anything about it. I remember my primary four teacher. I think there was <clears throat> it got into quite a bad episode in in uh, in a wet playtime, and, and we were all cooped up in the class, and, and I think it got to some kind of altercation between a number of people and the, exp- the genesis of it was somebody was having a go at me and the primary four teacher at the time you know just said well if someone says that to you Osama tell them sticks and stones may break my bones but names will never hurt me things have changed a lot since then hopefully you know but yeah and, and was there anything particular was there a time where it stopped or did it just gradually fizzle out or was it a time when you went to high school and it was just a new start? I think times changed. We did move to the other side of Bishop Briggs where the kids were different. So and when, when that happened, it, it all stopped. Okay. So Osama, we're going to cast you away to this desert island. Tell us about the first item that you're going to tra- take with you. So it's, it's, it's following on from that and it's the ayah from Surah Hujrat. O mankind, we created you from a single pair of male and female and made you into nations and tribes so that you may know each other, not that you may despise each other. Verily, the most honoured of you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous of you. Okay. And I guess it links into your experiences that you've described in terms of those early days of the racism and bullying and things. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that that resonates very strongly and it's still something very very much important in in the world today when you when you look at what's going on between all sorts of people between muslims and, and people of other faiths uh, between people in in countries of of different immigrant stock we're we're at a, we're at a real decision point i think as as a global community and 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 this this verse from the quran i think has a lot of of salience that yes nations and 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 different tribes exist and these were purposefully created by god and and that's fine and the reason that they were created was was for no other reason other than for people to get to know each other that's a beautiful sentiment um and one that we can all learn from and and i think as as muslims i, I hope that we're playing a part in, in diffusing a lot of those tensions which exist around the world and making this message really resonate and and more than delivering that message doing it you know, getting out there, meeting people, understanding them, uh, and and celebrating that difference. And I mentioned you grew up with two other brothers. Was there quite a competitive environment when you're growing up in terms of academically, etc., or were you all quite supportive and helped each other out? Well, my brother, my brothers, if if um, they were here, would, would uh, tell you that I was a dunce of the family. Uh, you know, my, 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 both both my younger brothers were were straight A students and. Uh, the middle one was was a Ducks medalist. Um, so, <clears throat> if it was competitive, I, I was clearly the, the loser uh, <laughs> within that particular battle. And was there also quite a big emphasis on education at home? Yeah, and 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 Dad would always stress that. You know, that was that was Paramount. He was a teacher himself. You know, that that was the pathway out of um, everything. And, and you know that those discussions about race and racism that were happening around that time. I mean, his his reaction to to this was that you know this exists, and you know he something that really stands out. You know, one of one of the lessons that he gave me very early was that you're gonna have to work twice as hard as as everyone else just to just to be stationary, just to just to be seen on 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 something of a level playing field, and that has always you know been been very much paramount in my mind. And I guess that can seem very unfair to people is that, you know, because of 
from a culture or religion or circumstances just to achieve the same as somebody else who's got privilege mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to work harder yeah um, and, and people still talk about that as a big issue I mean do you think that's something people just get up and accept and deal with it or how should people respond because it can some people say well okay we know that's what needs to happen but that's really unfair it is unfair you hope that over the years though that gets better and you know when it, when I was talking a moment ago about global tensions, I mean, one of the things right now is that, you know, in, in, on a global level, it's, it's, it's better here, that, that acceptance of difference, although it's not without tensions and not without issues, it, you know, it's better here than anywhere else. You know, the fact is that, you know, our, our parents' generation came here in the, the, the 60s and, and 70s and they weren't just brought here as, as, as labour. They were given the opportunity to stay, um, were given a passport and nationality and, their kids, our generation, was uh, was given the opportunity to 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 fit in and 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 be Scottish, be or be British, whatever that may be. And that's an amazing thing on a global level that hasn't happened elsewhere. And when you see the likes of Marine Le Pen and and um, you know others on on the extreme right say that this isn't possible, that that experiment that took place where you can take hundreds of thousands if not millions of people from from another culture and settle them into an, an alien culture as they see it they, their view is that cannot work and you know our position is obviously that that's complete bunkum that this can work this is a great you know difference from anything that's happened in history usually people you know stuck to their own territories and, and their own nations and suddenly people are mobile and and not just mobile and not just working somewhere but can become fundamentally different people than they would have if they had had, if if they had stayed in their so-called home countries. And do you think there's something unique about Scotland and accepting these people from different cultures and society? Even you often hear it's different than England elsewhere, but across the world. I mean, is that just something we like to believe because you were in Scotland? Or do you, think, you know, what is it about Scotland if that is the case that makes it's slightly different for for people that come from all walks of lives and that sense of community and society. I get asked that a fair bit at the moment. Um, you know, at Amnesty, we're racking our brains about, you know, what, what's happening in the world today. Why is there so much tension? Why are people so angry? And when they look at Scotland, they're seeing a country where where the government still upholds the idea of multiculturalism that that says we want to welcome more refugees than than, than we're currently able to take. And that's quite a unique thing. And they're not many countries in, in the Western world that are that are still doing that. And, and I don't think that happened by accident. I think that's something that has required political leadership over the last 15 uh, to, to 20 years about this idea of, of civic nationalism, that we can be proud patriots, but the the entry to that to that club of patriots is, is not skin colour or, or religion. It's, you know, that you're you're here and you believe that you are Scottish. Uh, that's the only requirement. And that's, that's actually a remarkable thing. And, and, you know, a combination of that, the, the fact that I think we have a different kind of media environment here, which is, which is a lot more responsible, um, also helps. But I would like to see Scotland play a far more full frontal role um, globally in, in talking about these issues because I think we do have a, an important voice uh, globally. So tell us about your next item that you're going to take with you. So it's some hadith from, from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, on, on education. Uh, so seek knowledge uh, from the cradle to the grave um, and also seek knowledge even if it is as far as China. And why did you pick that? Because, you know, when, when my father was 
giving lessons and you know my parents both you know stressed this idea of, of education as, as as a pathway that you need to work harder but at that time it was about working harder at school making sure you're getting the grades because for so many that that was was the pathway and when you look at it you know that was key to to achieving achieving potential you know if I, if I look at the difference between you know my side of the family who were brought up here and and you know up you know the side of the family that that didn't emigrate and, and stayed in Pakistan for example you know the, the crucial difference is is not in a sense of money or genetics or anything like that it's you know we were given the chance to fill our potential of, of going to school you know and, and flourishing to to um to our full capacities and what was your ambition when you're growing up in terms of when you growing up what did you think you wanted to be or work as in terms of a career I think at school I wanted to be a lawyer and uh, you know that that was an early dream and uh, I did start a law degree uh, which which I didn't finish and uh, I changed after after a year or so to to study politics Uh, instead I I felt that was an area that I I wanted to explore. What Um, was it about law that initially appealed to you when you were young? It was actually the the television series Murder One. I was just a huge fan of uh, the courtroom scenes. Uh, <laughs> you thought you'd be the shouting barrister or something. And, it was, know, a, yeah, exactly. The drama, uh, movies like A Few Good Men and so on. Yeah, it, it was it was it was those kind of uh, drama scenes. I always loved a, a good courtroom scene. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't beat it. Uh, but uh, I think when I started to study law, it was it was quite a bit different. I was actually in the the, the same. Same year of of, of, of law school as um, Amar Anwar, okay. uh, we both started uh, first year law together. So um, you know, I, I think he did create that drama, but I don't think many uh, would have the same abilities to do so. But maybe there's that sense of establishing justice or fighting for the underdog. Maybe even from those early days, that obviously you know, full circle at the moment with Amnesty. Probably that's you know the the, the core of what you you do and you advocate for. Yeah, maybe. I think that was uh, that, that may well have been there as well. Okay. So you went on to university, so you mentioned you'd started with law, then you changed to politics. And around that time, I remember you started this blog, I think that might have been just after you finished uni, called uh, Rolled Up Trousers. And perhaps, uh, you know, one of the early generation of people, uh, Muslims certainly occupying that digital sphere, you know, and writing and getting that thought out, you know, around that time. I mean, how did that whole idea come about? Where did the name come from, and what, what was what was what the thinking behind rolled up trousers? <laughs> well, I, I was put onto blogging. I think this, that was around two thousand and five by a friend of mine uh, called Sahib, uh, who now lives in in uh, Birmingham. Um, he said there's this new thing and you should do it. I don't know why he particularly thought I should be doing it, uh, but it, but I tried it out and and it was great because it was it was a great and people still to this day still come up to me and say they used to read my blog, uh, which is incredibly humbling and and you know asking me to to to, to do it again. At that time, it was mainly blogging around Muslim issues. You know, it was post seven seven. You know, there, I think daily headlines and still are daily headlines. So normally I'd be taking them apart and, you know, parsing some of the stories that were written and, and, and writing responses to them. And it was, it, but I think the biggest thing for me actually was it really honed my analytical ability and, and writing because it was it was a daily blog. Was, I'd be posting two or three times uh, every day at its peak. And a lot of those skills I took forward into 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 my formal career, but it was 
it, it stopped, I think, really after Twitter came on board. This is pre-Twitter. And a lot of that energy that existed in the blogosphere, because you'd have a lot of energy from, from, from other bloggers. And there was others at the time as well. I remember, um, you know, the prominent Muslim blogger was uh, Shanina Jan Muhammad, um, the author and advertising executive now. So there's a lot, there's a lot of talent in, in that space, but it around about 2008, I think it, we all just moved on to Twitter and, and became became something else entirely. And had you been somebody that always enjoyed writing and did you find that quite an enjoyable process? Was that something you had to really, you know, struggle and, and get into really to, to get that out there to write the blogs? No, I think I always enjoyed it. And, um, you know, there would, there would be short responses to things. I mean, still to this day, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm in awe of anyone that can write a book. I, I don't think I would ever do something like that. I mean, normally my, my missives are, are a page, uh, so it's, it's a press release or, or, or a blog or something like that. And then you can, you know, quite creatively and succinctly create a, a good argument in, in, in that space. But, you know, it's... It's power. I mean, you know, I, I would encourage. I mean, this is a big weakness amongst Muslim community is that you know we have a lot of very intelligent and smart and capable people. But you know, and, and you know, it's, it's a common adage that you know a lot of Muslims do well at school, but you'll typically see them getting four A's and a and a D in their hires, and you can always guess what that D is going to be in. <laughs> in it's, English, it's, it's going to be in English. Um, but we've got to improve because you know the the the. The, the challenges I think the community faces in explaining itself, a lot of that um, will be found in the nuance of language and the power of arguments. And, and if um, you're not able to write, and I would encourage all young people listening to this, you know, hone those skills. And, and they can be built. It's not innate. Um, it takes practice. And, and anyone can do it. So you went on from university. Tell us a bit about your next item that you've chosen. <laughs> okay, so I've chosen um, another hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, um, and he said, <clears> "Oh, <throat> young people, so this is addressed to young people, all oh, young people, whoever among you can marry, should marry. And you took that advice straight to heart out around uni then? Tell us what happened. Yeah, so I, I got married um, at the age of, of 21. Uh, I was I just finished uh, second year of, of university and it was something that, that felt right. It was just a number of factors all coming together, you know, people suggesting my wife now, uh, Frida, you know, the, you know, my mother had met her as well and um, there just seemed to be, a, a, you know, it just felt right. Um, and I look at it now and, and you know, people are, are still shocked that you seriously you got married at university, uh, you got married at the age of 21. Um, I would encourage everyone to do the same because, you know, she's, Frida's been my uh, partner on the journey and we both got married essentially as kids. And what that means is we, we grew up together. And did you face certain challenges or was it difficult around that time? Yeah, it was. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we, 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 you know, we're not rich people, um, so there was a thing of how you make ends meet, how you keep the house going. You know, Adam, um, our, our first kid was born at, a few years later. Uh, when I was, was twenty four, and yeah, it's you know, the, 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 there was times, particularly in our twenties, where you know you don't have two pennies to rub together, and you're wondering how you're going to pay next month's bills and and so on. But that really forges. The relationship, um, because together you're you're making it work, and you built it together. So you know, alhamdulillah, we're we're a lot more uh, comfortable these days. But you know, that's a journey we 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 both took together, and I think it makes it makes it all the more special. And what would you say to people that say, look, actually, there's probably advantage in 
waiting a little bit, you know, finish uni, get your career started, maybe travel a bit, do stuff before you got a wife and kids that are, you know, distracting you, you'll be with them for gener- you know, for decades. Because that, that seems to be the, the norm or the cultural expectation, isn't it? So what would you say to those that say actually getting married too young seems quite constrictive or almost claustrophobic, you know, you're tied down at such a young age? I'm not knocking that. I mean, I think there's wisdom in that. And then I sometimes do look at 21-year-olds now and think, God, I was married at that age. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't imagine this 21-year-old doing that. So everyone's an individual. But having said that, I, the advantage of it was that we we essentially were, were still kids and, and we were not formed as, as individuals with hard and fast opinions about things or the ways that we do things. So there was a flexibility there and we, we grew into each other, as it were. And I think that was the advantage of it. And I think a lot of marriages, you know, you, you're seeing a breakdown of, of, of a lot of marriages these days. And I think a lot of that is to do with, you know, if, once you're older, you're, you are set in your ways and, and trying to join together with 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 somebody else who who you know you you don't have that commonality with can can be tougher and and i think there's definite advantages to to doing it earlier in life rather than later so you went on to become quite involved in the anti-war protests um obviously you know part of that was the fallout of the 9-11 attacks thinking back you know people say that they remember when they heard first heard about the 9-11 attacks did you realize at the time the magnitude of what had just happened and the effect it would have for you know years and decades to come. No, we hadn't seen anything like that, so it's hard to really look at things in such a long-term way. I'm sure that people with a lot more who are a bit older and had a bit more experience would would see how how that would um, continue to ripple in in the years to come and, and right up till the present day. But yeah, you know, we all remember where we were. It's 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 one of those one of those moments. Tell us about your next item. Summer. So this is a um, passage from the Declaration of our Broth from 1320, and it, and it reads, It is in truth not for glory, nor riches, nor honours that we are fighting, but for freedom, and for that alone which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. Tell us a bit about why that quote is important to you. Well, it's incredibly inspiring, and it, it summarises a number of things for me. I mean, one declaration of our broth was, you know, a declaration of nationhood by by Scots uh, in, in in the fourteenth century. So, you know, it as as a Scottish nationalist, it's a it's a foundational document, and it's also a document which is said to have inspired a, a lot in the Western world. But you know, it's it said that American revolutionaries and uh, were were inspired by it when it came to came to their declaration of independence. But more than that, it's the idea that, that's contained within there. And and that idea of, of freedom, which, you know, carries on in me, I think it's probably the, the idea that I hold above all when it comes to, to global politics. And, you know, in, in particular within within the Muslim world. I was when I walked into Al Jazeera in, in twenty eleven, it was January the twenty fifth, two thousand eleven, which for those who follow the Middle East will know that's a very resonant date because that was the, the day that the Egyptian revolution began in, in what that, became termed as Arab Spring. That was your first day? That was my first day at work. <clears throat> yeah. And uh <laughs> Al Jazeera was very much at the heart of that. We, the the revolutionaries themselves, really saw the the value of what they were doing through 
the image of themselves on Al Jazeera's screen. In Tahrir Square, the, the protesters were, were erecting big screens, uh, which were just essentially massive white sheets and, and projecting Al Jazeera onto them so that they could see themselves. And that way they knew that they existed. So, you know, Al Jazeera was... was <clears throat> and a lot of analysts looked at the importance of not just that moment, but the the years before, the 15 years before of the role Al Jazeera played in open debate and, you know, holding leaders to account as being the, the harbinger of, of, of what happened afterwards. But also for, for us internationally, it was it was a breakthrough moment. I think that's a moment where the international community, not just a kind of left-wing group of people, but, but everyone really recognised the, the value of the journalism which, which Al Jazeera was, was, was doing and, and people tuned in in, in, in their millions. And give us the flavour, what were those first few weeks and months like of that Arab Spring? That must have just consumed your whole life. I guess you're getting used to a new country, but then, you know, one of the biggest things in a generation's going on. I mean, was it long hours, little sleep, a lot of travelling? What was it? Give us a flavour of what life was like around that time. Well, it was it, it was it was amazing because everyone was, was, was excited and, and we're all doing long nights and all the rest of it and, and it was it was easy because you had this feeling that the world was being remade the, the possibilities were endless a new a new politics was emerging in the middle east and it was led by the people and the, and the tyrants were going to be were going to be defeated and something very special could uh, could emerge from from all of this so al jazz was 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 a hub for for so much of it you know the you know we had more leaders jetting in foreign ministers trying to get a handle on what was going on because it caught everybody by surprise no one had expected what was happening in in Egypt and Libya and and you know and in, in, in other parts of of the region and they were trying to understand what was going on and, and al jazzy's journalists and and the director general at the time had a particular insight into all of this, which which was unique uh, and which people wanted to access. But more than that, Al Jazeera was also a hub for the activists of the region. You know, we we were hosting conferences and, and young revolutionaries were coming and, and exchanging ideas and ideals and, and their dreams. And it was it was an incredibly special place to be. And so people talk a lot about media and whether it's biased and there's a wider conspiracy theory. I mean, around that time. Was Al Jazeera just reflecting what was going on, or do you think Al Jazeera was steering and guiding things in a certain direction that if you felt it had to go? It was the only outlet for that type of politics, you know, and and that's why it became important. Because if if, if all the other media in the region were were also fulfilling their obligations, then Al Jazeera is less special. Uh, but the fact is that the, all the other media. And in fact, I would put the Western media in this respect as well, because they couldn't see past the Mubaraks and the Gaddafis of the world. That was Middle East politics, and that's how you how you reported the events of the region. So Al Jazeera was always closer to the street, so even before the events that took place. And and that's why there's this natural gravitation for Al Jazeera as the hub for, for that kind of conversation. And all really Al Jazeera was doing was, was reporting all sides of it. So what would you say to those people that... Some people have a perception that, you know... Media, whether it's print or you know broadcast or radio, is a neutral platform. I mean, inherently, is every media, whether we're talking CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, does everyone have an angle? Does everyone have a take? Is it through their eyes? So, do we need, just need to accept that every media will have a bias, and that's just inherent? As long as we can see that, then because do or should we be aspiring to this idea that there's only one truth, and that's what we need to expect from the media? 
you're going to have an editorial direction if you've got if you've got media, whether you're Radio Ramadan or Al Jazeera or, or the BBC. You know, you're, you're made up of the people that you hire and the people that are running that that outlet. Al Jazeera, we. You know, if you look at Al English, you know, it was, it was a, a channel I was proud to be a part of. We we had 50 nationalities in in, in that newsroom uh, from from all over the world, and and it gave us a a level playing field to coverage, which I, I which I don't think other media can globally were were coming near. You know, the BBC, whatever you want to do, is almost exclusively run by by British people, and that colours its coverage in a certain way. Same same with CNN and. You know, for consumers of media, the important thing is that you're getting that diversity. You know, consume lots of different types of media, bring in those ideas, bring in that coverage and try and make sense of it in, in a way that, that is true to you. And what sort of world leaders and celebrities are knocking at your door? This wee boy from Bishop Briggs. So <laughs> what sort of, uh, in terms of who is trying to get a platform on Al Jazeera? Oh gosh, all sorts. You know, in, in those days... You know, we we had a great number of people coming through. Some of them were coming to to come on air, and some of them weren't. You know, we had Hillary Clinton, John McCain. You know, Kevin Rudd, the Australian Prime Minister, was, was a particular favourite of mine. He was quite a quite a character, and and we actually even had Alex Hammond uh, come through at uh, at some point as well. So it sounds like quite an exciting time. Tell us about your next item, Osama. So verily, with every difficulty there is relief. With every difficulty there is relief. So this is from the Quran. And why have you chosen that item? I was I was toying with a number of of, of different verses or, or hadith that, that convey this idea that you know life can be difficult and there's there's a way through it. You know, there's also the idea which is that you know some something may be put on you that you hate, but that is that is good for you. And I've always found that in life. And in this particular verse that, that I've highlighted, you know, it's, it's a promise. It's not that Things might get better at some point in the future. No, it's, it's a promise that, that Allah is making that verily with every difficulty there is relief. And then it's repeated with every difficulty there is relief just for additional emphasis. And it's something that I think we, you know, we, we, we all need to remember. And are there times in your life when these particular hardships and these verses particularly resonate? And what, what sort of gets you through these really difficult, challenging times? Yeah, you know, I when I when I look back, as as we we spoke about earlier in the conversation, you know, financial difficulties were were, were definitely a moment. Uh, there was a moment as well when I was when I was running for 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 parliament in lead up to twenty ten, when you know there was a lot of headlines that that were written. The the press were were really going for me, and uh, there was some hairy moments. You know, I I had uh, journalists raking through my bins and 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 all sorts. It was uh, it was pretty tough. And looking back on that now, it was it was really horrible at the time. You know, like stomach clenchingly bad. And what was it that was the most hurtful or upsetting? What aspect of it? It was the feeling that you let people down. That you know, there there were people you know within the party leadership who had who had given me a lot of support. And I think the thing that 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 would hurt you most is that you you felt that you let them down in that respect. But th- looking back in it, you know, it's in in many sense it was a great thing that happened. You know, at an early age you learn. The impact what your mistakes can have, and and a lot of what I went through, I still regard as unfair. But you know, I fully admit I made mistakes as well. And you learn from them, and 
in in my career since then, particularly in the field of communications, you 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 I have very innate sense now for a good well, a good radar of what's going to get you in trouble, how you avoid it when you're in trouble, how you get out of it, um, and I think that was the wisdom out of well that particular particular episode. And so obviously you spent a large part of your career in public relations and communications. For many people that still don't really understand what PR and communications is, I mean, what is the real key essence of PR? What this whole space and domain, what's it all about? It's it's about reputation and the presentation of, of yourself, your your company or your organisation in, in the media and in, in the public realm. Like ev- everyone has a reputation, whether you're... Apple computers or, or Nike or, or the Scottish government, whatever, wherever that might be, the public has a perception. And what the communications industry does, what people like me do, is is make sure that you are presenting your best self and you're trying to influence the public to, to support whatever you're supporting or be aware of your successes or your situation to, to the best of your best of your ability. So tell us about your next item, Sam. So the next item is the title of a book, actually, but it, it, the title of the book really sums up a lot of things, and, and that's um, Start With Why, and that's from Simon Sinek. And tell us why you've chosen that. People forget this a lot. I mean, when, when trying to put forward an argument in the media, we can get bogged down in facts and figures and what we think are the strength of our arguments and what we... What's starting with why? What that means is understanding that the public ultimately will care, will, will want to care. Why should they care? Why does any of this matter to, to me? And, you know, to take big examples, I, you know, I just mentioned Apple. Um, I mean, Simon Sinek puts forward the view that Apple, for example, didn't get into the, the how or what of the product. They never market how many gigabytes their computers are or the technical specifications of 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 uh, an iphone or or, or a um, macbook computer there's value that's attached to their their products which is which is great and that's an, it's an idea it's a it's a feeling um it's a, it's a kind of feeling of rebelliousness and it's the same with many products you know nike as as um you know never talk about the tech specs of their trainers you know people don't ever mention uh, how much the trainer weighs or anything like that um, I think Nike do pride themselves on that but they never talk about it they have a simple feeling of just do it and what that tries to do is instill a feeling into the users or potential users users of their products which transcends the actual value of their product and actually puts a feeling into people's hearts and I, I often get asked the question you know when I'm at the mosque okay what are we going to do on on the issue of um, Islamophobia and how the Muslim community is, is perceived and I think the community needs to answer this why question you know why should anyone care about Muslims you know what's what's the what's the proposition here because it's not going to be sufficient to if there is a narrative around terrorism and, and violence to try and myth bust myth busting really never works because all it does is reinforce the frame you just look defensive so there's going to have to be some some other idea or ideal um that that is put forward and you know there there are things within society that that islam has credible positions on you know and and you know their spirituality is a big one people are looking for for 
something more meaningful in our lives. You know, you don't hear Muslims really putting forward a strong case, and this is rich spiritual philosophy um, that you know that that we could be engaging with with society. You know, there's people looking for economic solutions on another realm as well, and you know. It, you know, Muslim community has a lot to say about about finance and the way that finance can be, be better for society, which you never hear Muslims talking about. Or as I said before, the the freedom narrative. I think this is this is incredibly important. We're we're perceived as people who are backward, who who repress women, who who chop off hands. Um, whereas the the reality is that you know when we when we look back at the the, the history of Islam, and we we do like to talk about. Things like the inventions and the, the the giant leaps forward in mathematics and and, and science that took place uh, five six hundred years ago. But what we don't seem to talk about is that that all came from uh, a fertile terrain of not just education, but of of freedom that allowing people to explore, allowing people to to discuss. And the reality is that you know most of the Muslim world has now become a cesspit of not just you know, corruption, despotism, um, where you can't imagine this kind of thing happening. And until we get back to that idea where Islam is intrinsically attached to this idea of freedom, the, the, the Muslim world, you, the str- you struggle to see it, see it moving forward. So in a sense, do you think almost Muslims need to have a PR strategy and almost need to employ a... Cause I, I mean, why are we so bad at this in terms of, is it just we think this will all come naturally and... It'll just, you know, it's other people's problem. They have to see it, and it's not our problem in terms of how we present Islam. I'm just thinking, because we, we are so often so poor at showing what Islam is really about. Yeah, I, I, I hope that you know the Muslim community will get better. It, it needs to get better at this. But it's there aren't a lot of people within the community engaged in this kind of work, and those who are engaged in this kind of work, although they have no very noble intentions, I think too often it ends up becoming responding to the narrative. So, you know, that newspaper's printed this thing, we must deluge them with complaints, or that politician's been really idiotic, we, we need to hammer them. Whereas the, the challenge is is around shaping of the message and the narrative. And that's where the power is. And the reason that I think many Muslims feel frustrated is that message and narrative is, is overwhelmingly negative towards the community. But there needs to be something emerging, and, and part of it is a lack of centralised function, but I think there, a number of people could get organised in this way uh, and do some very uh, very clever work in, in changing a lot of the narrative here. And I guess some sections of the community that advocate almost a victim mentality, you know, the Islamophobia, we're victims, we're getting demonised, we're getting attacked from all corners and seeing ourselves as that victim is that a healthy response or do you think actually that that's quite a destructive sort of response will that get you far i think it is destructive um you know even if you look at the the example of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him um you know he he was a man who <clears throat> could legitimately say he suffered from islamophobia you know he he tried to practice his religion for for 13 years in, in his hometown of mecca and was expelled essentially but when he was expelled, what he didn't do was complain bitterly about it and, and go around all the tribes of the regions, you know, complaining about being thrown out of a city and, and Islamophobia. No, the, the message was, was one of light and hope and, and humanity about the emancipation of people and, and realising everyone's potential. That's what made him successful uh, because he was 
he was a visionary and um, you know Muslims these days have to be similarly visionary look for the wider benefit for society uh, and how they can contribute to making that happen and while you're working in terms of the communication side at Al Jazeera you're involved in this award-winning campaign called hashtag free AJ staff for people that aren't you know forgotten or not familiar tell us a bit about what that was all about and why you know why was it so popular and why did it win awards well after the the counter-revolution I guess was was successful in Egypt in 2013 Al Jazeera came under a lot of pressure from the from the Egyptian authorities uh, we continue to report from the country but um, in the the end of 2013 three of Al Jazeera English journalists were were arrested by the authorities and, and put into jail now <clears throat> being a journalist in, in the Middle East that's an occupational hazard but what we were not expecting was that in the end, it wasn't just in the matter of hours that these men, Peter Baher and uh, Mohammed, were were arrested for. Those hours turned into days, and then weeks, and and months, and and eventually they were they're all imprisoned for for more than a year. I was given the task of coordinating our, our response to that, and what emerged was was a massive global reaction uh, from the grassroots to fellow professionals, rivals actually, rival media outlets rallying to our cause and saying that this was completely unacceptable. You know, the hashtag was was trending for, for, for much of that time. There was regular media coverage. I mean, it was um, what's been described as the largest uh, campaign for press freedom that, the, that there ever has been. And, and eventually I was, you know, I think we were all delighted we, we eventually did get home. And do you know if the campaign had anything to do with securing their freedom? It's it's impossible to know. I think it's a fair guess, though, if, if no one had done anything, they'd probably still be rotting in prison. And, you know, I think what gave us all real heart was the regular messages that were, were being smuggled out from prison, uh, from, from, from the three of them, which thanked everyone for, for what they were doing and kept saying that the campaign was what was keeping them going. And I think that's that's you know, apart from anything else, you know that that solidarity uh, definitely mattered. Tell us about your next item, Osama. So I've got another uh, verse uh, from Surah Hujrat. So we 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 started this with with a verse on racism, and um, this was I think it's the next verse on from that, which is all you who believe, <clears throat> avoid suspicion as much as possible. For suspicion in some cases is a sin, and spy not on each other nor speak ill of each other behind their backs. Would any of you like to eat the flesh of his dead brother? And why have you chosen this one? There's a lot in there. I mean, uh, as an aside, I'll say that there's quite an important thing about spying, uh, which is something that's going around writ large uh, by by governments across the world, uh, whether in in Muslim countries or or here in the West. Uh, This this is very much an in vogue topic about how much uh, information governments collect about their their citizens and you know you can you've got a a clear verse from the quran which says that we should not be spying on each other uh, but the thing i wanted to really highlight here was um speaking ill of each other behind their backs and this is a massive bugbear of mine and and you know going going on the previous point about one of the things that islam could um could offer leadership on outside of the muslim community itself is i think this is a massive one because the verse says something very important here, which is that would any of you eat the flesh 
of of your dead brother, and and that's quite a <clears throat> quite a vivid picture that's that's being painted. You know, none of us could imagine tucking away on on rotting flesh of of, of somebody that that we know, uh, but that's what it's akin to. And what I often see in 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 the workplace, for example, is, is people talking very badly of each other, and. I've noticed that what what ends up happening is that people's reputations get formed and and ruined uh, on on this kind of talk, uh, and ultimately it removes value from from all of us uh, because if we're all doing it to all of us, uh, for if everyone's doing it about everyone, everyone's diminished, and there's no benefit from it. And and I've always always found that if you have issues with people. We'll do something about that. If you if you're seeing an area where somebody needs to improve, or you know that they're doing something wrong, well, the best thing for for you and for them is for go and sort it out. Go and go and speak to that person and give them give them advice in in a in a wise manner, in a in a soft manner. And and what I normally find nine times out of ten, people take it on. And do you think that's even more, I guess, of pertinent issue now with I guess the whole online. And digital sphere is so easy now to pop a comment on Twitter, Facebook. Yeah. I mean, it's almost there's n- there's no barrier between a thought that comes and you typing something away within seconds. Or in the past, perhaps it was more more difficult to get an audience to you know mm. issues you have with people. Do you think that's cha- a, a different variable nowadays as well? For anyone who's a public figure, I mean, they'll they'll definitely chime with that. It's not even backbiting anymore. There's just people feel fully entitled to have weird conversations about, about people, their families, and and you know surmise all kinds. I mean, the, the the most recent example was you know the the um, university professor who was doing the BBC interview, and his his kids came into the came into the room, and suddenly there's <clears throat> widespread debate taking place about his relationship with his wife and how he look after the kids and his treatment of his own kids and and so on. It was, it was a remarkable kind of pseudo psychology that was was taking place. But you know he's he's a real person with um, with feelings, and and you know I hope he didn't search his name and, and see that kind of analysis taking place but that's 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 exactly the kind of thing we're talking about and you talked about people in the public eye and you know you know over the years you've been very prominent in terms of in, in the public sphere and i guess there's some people who are social animals and you know they thrive in that sort of environment there's some people who are quite introverted and quite reluctant but you know circumstances put them in certain situations i mean where do, how would you categorize yourself and do you find it comfortable being out in open and being seen and being heard I would be ca- ca- categorised as, as an introvert without a doubt I, I don't thrive on, on crowds and large groups of people don't feel natural in in approaching people and engaging in, in a lot of conversation I you know, I'm, I'm quite happy in the reactive side. If you know people come and speak to me, I'm I'm quite happy to, to engage with that. But it's not. I don't find energy in it. And um, you know, I th- we we live in a world which which often is built around extroverts, and you know, they, they're said to be an inbuilt advantage for them. But there's a lot of us who who, who don't get that. And and what it's often perceived as, and, and I have been accused of this, particularly when I when I, when I was running for office, of is of a certain degree of of, of arrogance and you know not really feeling connection with people and you know some of us find it harder it's not it's not a natural thing for me um, and it, but it's the exact opposite of arrogance actually it's it's, it's it's rooted in a completely different place 
And as we come towards the end of the interview, Sama, talked a lot about work and your past. I mean, how do you, what do you do to relax in your downtime? You know, what sort of things do you do and enjoy? How do you get away from all this constant, I'm sure, you know, when you're at work, it's constant uh, ideas and challenges and strategizing, but when you need to get away from it all, what do you do and how do you, you know, get some downtime? I watch, I, I watch movies. Uh, I, I do enjoy doing that, you know, and I read. That can sometimes appear a little bit like work because my reading list tends to be political, political books uh, or political analysis. Uh, but that's that's what I enjoy doing. And when you're cast away to this desert island, how do you think you'll cope with being alone and the solitude? <laughs> uh, well, the introvert in me says uh, that that's great. But uh, of course, you miss people. You miss your loved ones. I would. I, I suspect I would cope with it better than most. And on this desert island, you can take uh, a book with you. What book would you take? So I would take um, My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. And this one has uh, particularly history with me. It's a book I, that I read as as a child. Um, my father used to uh, take me to to the library. I, I remember it's, it's it was a favorite of mine and as my kids are, are getting older and you know don't enjoy being read to quite as much they, they do their own reading now thank you very much one of the memories i'll always cherish is is reading to them um when they when they were younger and this was a favorite uh, i remember the some of the belly laughs uh, at this book um, and for those that haven't read it what's in, in a quick summary what's it about so it's 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 centered around a boy gerald it's semi-autobiographical um, and it's how, about him and his single mother and his siblings. They move from Britain to a Greek island. Uh, and it's really about his adventures on the island. A lot of them with, he was very horticultural and, and, and he loved um, uh, loved animals. Uh, so the, the wild creatures that, that he was finding and his uh, adventures with them. Uh, and obviously, as the title suggests, my family and other animals also what his family got up to as well. And finally, you can take a luxury item with you. What would you take? I take my camera. Uh, it's a Sony A7. I do enjoy taking photographs uh, when the opportunity arises. And hopefully, you're going to send me to a picturesque island. <laughs> uh, and uh, if so, then um, I, I will enjoy taking some photographs. It's wonderful. You can have that. So, Osama, thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us. Really appreciate it, Melissa. I'll put a lot of baraka in the work that you do. Uh, give you strength and the ability to do more and more, especially to benefit yourself, people that are suffering injustice and also the Muslims and everyone else around the world. Remember us in your du'as and we wish you all the best. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. Let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mukmuslim.tv. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.